Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 390th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who brings together nature and theology. We're talking with Lena Ruse about gardening and religion. Lena is a full professor teaching history of religions in Stockholm, Sweden. She is also an avid allotment grower of vegetables who last year harvested literally a ton of vegetables from her 120 square meters in two allotments in urban Uppsala. Originally a medievalist, she specializes in interreligious relations between Jews, Christians, and Muslims during the Middle Ages. Her other research includes topics like religion in volunteering, religion and sexuality, religion in food, and more recently, religion and gardening. Lena is about to embark on a new research project on faith-based community gardens and would like to get in touch with people currently involved in such. Welcome to the show today, Lena. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Or in the words of the Talmud, if not now, when? 
There you go. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, as you said, I'm a professor of religious studies and religion and gardening is not really the most common topics for scholars of religion to study. But I've sort of taken upon myself to expand the definition of what topics can be studied in religious studies. So like you said, sexuality, food, popular culture, and now gardening. Nice. And how are you connecting gardening with religions? And in thinking about it, I'm sure there's quite a few places to do it, but where are you doing it at? Well, I started out as being a scholar of Judaism. I'm personally not Jewish. I come from a Christian Protestant background. And when you look at what we call the Abrahamitic religions, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, gardening is just the basis of everything. These three religions tell us about how life started, how life for humanity started in this beautiful garden, and how that is sort of also the goal of the afterlife in paradise to end up in this lovely garden. And this, of course, is quite natural because all these three religions have their origin in this desert climate. And as you know, in Phoenix, Arizona, Uh if you're in the desert, what threatens life is the heat and drought. Yes. And the garden is like the picture of life and security and survival. There's no wonder that these religions would imagine paradise as being a garden. I know with Judaism, they have structured part of their religiosity around gardening, haven't they, or farming? There are, of course, in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible, there are very specific instructions for how you should do your gardening and your farming and according to the Bibles, which is part of, you know, another understanding of religion is, which is much wider than we may have today when we tend to see religion as something very, very narrow. For most of the history of humanity, religion has been something that has sort of encompassed all of our existence, how we dress, how we eat, how we garden, how we organize our societies, our responsibilities for those in need, etc. But it's also very clear that in these traditions, there have been sort of constant attempts to recreate something of this original paradise gardens, like in palace gardens or in parks or in you know the wonderful Islamic gardens that you may have visited or seen in pictures or in Christian monastic gardens. There has been this image that the garden is a place of peace and recreation. And you know that the notion that we have these days, that nature is something positive, that's actually quite a modern notion, because in ancient history, nature was dangerous. Very. Nature was a place where you could encounter dangerous animals, or you would run out of water or food, whereas a garden was a safe and secure place. Mm -hmm. Well, until you got to the Garden of Eden. Yes, of course. We all know what happened there. Yeah. But as very often in religious traditions, theology and practical reasons sort of are combined. And this is very much true when it comes to gardens. In the monastic traditions, they had the old Latin adage called ora et labora, to pray and to work. And this was very much implemented in the gardens. It was sort of perceived as positive not to be idle, to sort of keep your hands busy constantly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the monastics were also supposed to embrace the vow of poverty. So they were to work to sustain themselves. So the monks and the nuns and the monasteries would work in the gardens to provide for themselves. 
Well, and farming or gardening is about feeding our belly, and I guess religions is about feeding our soul. There's a connection there. So there, and you need both, clearly. And in the monasteries, the monks and the nuns were also supposed to sort of separate themselves from the outside world, so they could dedicate themselves to the religious life and to prayer and to study. And being self-sufficient and providing your own food was also, of course, a way of achieving that enclosure from the outside world. All the monks and nuns became very skilled in producing these products. To this day, there are monasteries that are famous for their beer, like the Trappist beer from Belgium, or their wines, or their herb-infused liquors, things like that. Right. A lot of our gardening history or gardening progress has happened in the realm of religion and monasteries, has it not? Absolutely, especially the monasteries that were located far out in the wilderness where they had to invent different kinds of agricultural practices that enabled them to sort of sustain themselves far away from civilization. I'm kind of dragging through my brain and there was a monk that did the peas. Was that Mendel? Yes, that was Mendel, right. Sort of the original GMOs. All right. Not quite GMOs, but hybridization. Yes, absolutely. Gregor Mendel did the hybridization to figure out the different colors and how to kind of manipulate that. Interesting. And what other kind of research have you found that the religions have done over the past 10 centuries? Almost in every religious tradition, their gardens have a place, not just in the the Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. In Buddhism, as you know, the ultimate goal for a human is to achieve what they talk about as enlightenment, the realization that all things are empty of permanent existence. And when you realize that, you will also be liberated from the circle of rebirth. And this is something that's traditionally realized by meditation, by prayer. But in Zen Buddhism, they teach that this enlightenment could just as well be achieved by doing very menial tasks like working in a garden or raking leaves or something. And hence, Zen gardens are very often designed to sort of facilitate this meditation upon life. So they will have things that will remind us of the passing of times, like, for instance, flowers that will only flower for one day or trees that will have a longer life or even stones that seem to have this quality of permanence and eternity, Uh but they're actually worn down with time just as well. Yeah, that's comparing human time to geologic time. Right. But it's interesting that vegetation and agriculture seems to be part of almost every mythology that we know of. Uh Because it's so basic for human survival. In very many religious traditions, we find something that we scholars of religion call etiological myths. And these are stories that basically tell us why are things the way they are. So, for instance, how did a certain people get their main crops, the crops that sort of enable them to survive in whatever environment they live in? One of the most well-known of these myths is, of course, the one about the corn mother that you find among various First Nation North American peoples. Yep. I was just going to say that. Yeah, and according to this myth, the corn mother was this mythical figure that gave birth to the creator god. And from her body, the first corn grew that sustained these peoples ever after. So it's a very clear image of the goddess that sort of gives her own body so her people can survive. Wow. This is threaded food and gardening and 
farming and is threaded throughout all religions then pretty deeply. Yeah, I think it is because like I said, it's so basic for mm -hmm. human survival. And up here in the north where I come from in the old Norse mythology, we have sort of been a bit more focused on beverages. <laughs> so here our most famous myth is not on agriculture or on food, but rather on how the alcoholic beverage mead was once produced by the gods, but just for us. Mm -hmm. In most sort of mythologies, there have been a number of divinities that are connected to vegetation and agriculture and with their own mythologies and gods that people believed could be influenced to give a good harvest in this way, sort of ensure survival of the people. Yeah, You may have heard of maybe the most famous one is the myth of the Greek goddess Demeter and her daughter Persephone. And in this myth, Persephone had been kidnapped by her uncle Hades the god of the underworld mm -hmm. and her mother Demeter was very distraught of course and uh, she was searching all over the world for her daughter and as she did she neglected her duties as the vegetation goddess so all vegetation died and then Hades agreed to release Persephone on the condition that if she had not eaten any of the food of the dead while she was in the underworld. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that she had only eaten a few kernels of pomegranate. So they sort of made a deal that she was every year to spend three months in the underworld with Hades and then come back to Earth again. Wow. So you're looking for connections to community gardens that are religious-based. What does that look like? What are you looking for? This is one of the research projects that I would like to embark upon for the coming two or three years. Mm -hmm. And as you may know, there are a number of faith-based communities that have established gardens, usually in urban settings. Yep. This is partly as a way of combating what we call food deserts and food insecurity in these urban areas, but also as a way of sort of building community both inside the faith community in itself, but also as a sort of a form of outreach into the wider community where they're active. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm interested in. Of course, it goes back to ancient traditions in all religions that people are supposed to help the needy, like to give to charity and things like that. And this is just sort of a modern form of doing that. There's actually quite a bit of research, for instance, religion and NGOs. But I find these sort of community gardens interesting in a way because they're different from other types of charities because there isn't this clear separation between those who give and those who receive help. Ah. In these sort of community gardens, the most needy can also be the people who are the most important resources in the project. They could be the people that actually bring the skills or the knowledge or the time or the dedication to the garden. Yeah. So in that way, it, it is sort of different than other sort of like church-based charities. Like, for instance, there are Christian NGOs that help women get out of trafficking, for instance, by teaching them other skills like making jewelry. But then there's a very clear separation between the helpers and the recipients. It's not something they do together. Whereas in these community gardens, it's usually something that is initiated by people who are passionate about gardening. So it actually ends up something that these people do together. And I find that very interesting. So what I'm interested in is how does gardening together sort of build community within these religious communities, but also as a form of outreach. I'm interested in sort of getting in touch with people who are involved with such projects or know of such projects. So let me know. Beautiful. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you 
and help you with this project? How would they do that? The easiest way would be through email. I'm sure you will include in the show notes for this program. Yep. And just let me know where and why this project would be interesting for me to study. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, you know, in scholarship, it's pretty much a path of constant failure. So like when you start growing vegetables as well, that you really have to get used to failure. Just that we don't consider it to be failure, we consider it to be life experiences. Yeah. The reason I ask this question is because that's how we learn, right? Right. And I think it's great that you do because we don't talk enough about our failures. And that means that we actually force other people to go down the same one-way streets that we have already been down. Mm -hmm. To get back to your question, I think one of the things that I have failed at is not knowing when to give up and to try something different. Because I think we have this sort of obsession that it's a bad thing to give up. Mm -hmm. So we keep trying constantly. But, you know, if you keep planting the same crop in the same place and it never thrives, maybe you should try something different. And I think that goes for many situations in life, whether it's, you know, a relationship or a partnership or a workplace, it comes to time where you should actually take a step back and say, no, this is not going to work. I should try something different. That's a real two-edged sword there. Mm -hmm. There's also the thought process that you just don't give up until you're successful. Right. But I think one of the pieces here is that you need to try it maybe in a different way. Right. I've been doing this whole urban farming thing for 30 plus years here in the Phoenix area. And there were many times that I got my behind kicked and then I tried something different, but I never gave up. I think the key phrase here is to try something different. So giving up doesn't mean not doing anything. It means doing something else. Yeah, or doing something else differently. The reason I ask the failure question is because I have an absolute epic failure in urban farming. Ended up costing me a you know a hundred thousand dollars in U.S. dollars, and it happened in two thousand and four. And we were raising four-inch potted plants of herbs and vegetables and stuff, and we put together a plan where we were going to raise eighty thousand of these in the fall of two thousand and three, and they weren't quite ready in January of two thousand and four, and then in February and March of 2004, it rained every weekend. So at the end of the season, we ended up with 60,000 plants that we hadn't sold. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, my lesson there was don't jump in as heavily. If we'd have raised 8,000 plants rather than 80,000 plants, it would have been different. Not all of your eggs in the same basket. That's exactly it. And you know, it all worked out for the best, but I didn't give up on urban farming. I gave up on that pathway. You know, there's a balancing act that we have to do in order to, you know, make our life work and really have our heart follow what we're supposed to be doing. I think you're very much on the same page with a Nobel laureate called Paul Nurse, who talked about the fact that we need to talk more about our failures, because that way we can actually learn from other people's failures. And we don't have to make all the same mistakes, all of us. Yeah. But somehow there doesn't seem to be too much of a form for sharing those failures, except for the Urban Farm podcast, of course. Uh -huh. Well, there you go. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, if I was going to be a bit self-centered for a moment, I would say getting to where I am in life. 
Because it's just so very unlikely. I'm the child of two immigrants. I come from a very sort of solid working class background. No one in my extended family had ever even graduated from high school. So that I would be, you know, a professor of a field that at least in the past used to be very traditional and very male dominated is extremely unlikely. Yeah. So I consider that to be a success. If I would step away from myself as a person, I would say that as a teacher and a scholar, it's extremely hard to know in the long run what impact your teaching or your scholarship will have. And sometimes it may surprise you. I actually have an epic story for you in that. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation uh -huh. that dealt with persecution of Jews in Europe during the First Crusade, I was invited to this youth camp to come and talk about the Crusades from a Jewish point of view. And this was a role-playing camp, so they did lots of LARPing, live-action role-playing. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would sort of follow color, so I gave my lecture in a role as one of the women of my medieval Hebrew chronicles. So I started the presentation saying, I will now tell you what happened when the Crusades came to my town. And I had like... 120 13 to 18 year olds who had barely slept for four days and still they were awake at the end of the lecture uh -huh. and i didn't think much more about that but then years later i got this phone call by one of the youth who had been present there and it turns out that he had also years later been present at one of the first neo-nazi demonstrations in sweden he was there as part of his church where they were basically trying to manifest their disgust at this neo-Nazi demonstration. So they stood along the road singing Christian hymns. That's all they did. Mm -hmm. And they were arrested for disturbing this demonstration. Wow. And then he called me and he said, well, you know, I remember your lecture. I remember in those stories about the persecutions of the Jews during the First Crusade in the 11th century, there was a Christian bishop who protected the Jews and gave them refuge in his castle. My lawyer and I have figured that we could use this as a precedent for Christians speaking up against anti-Semitism. So could you please give me the source text? Wow, nice. Now, who would have known? Yeah. And I think about that when my daughters, you know, when we do homework and they say, why do I have to learn this? And my usual response is, I don't know. And neither do you, because it's impossible. But there may be a day when this may be absolutely essential for you. It's always a delight for me because I teach a lot. It's always a delight for me when days, months or years later, people circle back around and say this is the difference it made. So virtual high five to you. Well, thank you. Right back at you. So what drives you? Well, I have a background in the martial arts in my formative years. And I think this has actually influenced me a lot as a teacher, I think. Because one thing that we were taught was that if you had had the privilege of learning something, you had a duty to pass it on mm -hmm. on every occasion. This is a bit of an old-fashioned attitude in teaching these days, because teaching in general seems to be sort of unfashionable, whereas learning is very in. We're supposed to be like very on equal plane with our students. Mm -hmm. 
which I'm all for in a discussion. Everyone does have something to bring to the table, but it's also silly to pretend that I haven't spent years of my life learning these things. I think the idea that learning is a privilege and passing on that learning is something that we're sort of duty bound to do. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I realized I should probably at this time say something about religion, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Actually, I would say one of the books that has influenced me the most in the last year or so is the book called Gut, the Inside Story of Our Body's Most Underrated Organ by Julia Anders. Have you read that? I haven't, but it's about gut health, I'll bet. It's a wonderful book. She's a scholar, The Gut Microbiome. Uh-huh. And she explains in a very humorous and very research-based way how it affects us and the choices that we make. You know, that we think that we make independent choices about, you know, nutrition and things. But actually, you know, you're one person fighting six billion microbes in your gut. You know, what are your chances if they're all screaming sugar, sugar, sugar? Yep. And she also writes about how we can actually affect the composition of our gut microbiome through the food choices and other choices in lifestyle that we make. Yeah. Like don't feed it sugar. Exactly. Don't feed it sugar because it will continue demanding sugar. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, this would be something that would come from my training as a scholar, mm -hmm. and it would be to be critical, to be discerning when it comes to the information that you base your decisions on in your growing and in your other aspects of life. You know, the, the basic question that we try to teach our students is, do I have good reason to believe this? Yeah. When someone tells you something, does this person have the facts to back this up? Is this a reputable source? Or is this a person who has promoted false information in the past? I think that's a very basic question that we need to get used to asking in all facets of life. Yeah. Well, and especially these days with the amount of media that we get thrown at us, that's super important. Absolutely. I'm a very sort of avid follower of the YouTuber called The One Yard Revolution. Oh, yes. What I especially like about his videos is that they're so sort of research-based. He really tries to find the research behind certain practices and says, well, there isn't really that much research to substantiate the effect of that, so I wouldn't spend my time doing that. But on the other hand, this is very well based by research. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Lena. Well, thank you. So I just want to revisit your future project that you're looking to connect with religious-based community gardens. Mm -hmm. Just give us 30 seconds about that as a reminder. Yeah. Well, what I want to do is I want to find a couple of sites where religious organizations, churches, mosques, synagogues have decided to establish community gardens in urban settings. And in order to sort of impact their community life as a faith-based organization, but also the larger community. So if you know such, please get in touch with me. Perfect. And your contact information will be on our show notes page. Wonderful. So you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lena. That's L-E-N-A. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know 
you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.